Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to Space of the Nation, and I'm here for the group hug. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I often escape uncomfortable social gatherings by using the Mokhtar stealthies. <laughs> we are here to talk about Galaxy Quest today, but upcoming we have next week the Three Body Problem. After that, the movie Arrival, which Dan suggested, and I'm a little lukewarm on, but we'll see. I have been talked into liking other stuff on this podcast that I didn't think I liked. Then we're going to do a fan favorite, The Forever War, uh, which is a book about, well, I shouldn't say it's about Vietnam, but it's based on the author's experiences in Vietnam. And then we are going to do Battlestar Galactica, the original Battlestar Galactica, the uh, pilot slash TV movie, right, Dan? That is correct. The pilot episode, basically. Right. And then we're going to do Infomocracy, which Dan didn't even know existed, but I know he's going to eat right up. (laughs) We are also, by the way, at almost 100 paying patrons. Apparently people really like Alien. Who knew? When we hit 100, we were doing a special patrons-only show, the topic chosen by, in fact, the patrons. So please, if you haven't yet, do join at uh, patreon.com slash space the nation. Our next AMA uh, will be April 3rd, and you can pre-register now for that. And the technical glitches we experienced last time hopefully will not, not occur again. So like I said, today we're talking about Galaxy Quest, which I am pretty sure if you're listening to this podcast, you have seen Galaxy Quest. And if Why you haven't, doing- just stop right now <laughs> and go watch Galaxy Quest. And then you trust me when I say you're going to enjoy this podcast a lot more. Yes. And also, if you have time, you can stop this podcast, go watch Galaxy Quest, and then watch the the documentary based on Galaxy Quest, and then come back to the podcast. (laughs) We'll still be here. It's a podcast. You got to do the work, people. You got to do the work. And why are we talking about this? I wanted to talk about Galaxy Quest in part because not all sci-fi is serious. There is room for comedy and science fiction. I think sometimes... It's, it takes itself a little seriously, mm-hmm. but there is straight-up comedy in sci-fi, uh, although this particular movie gets its comedy from being a very good drama, I would mm. say, and we can talk mm. about that more. Also, this is a really formative movie for a lot of people. I think maybe people younger than us, Dan. <laughs> I would suspect that's the case, yes. Because um, I saw this movie as an adult when I had already been yeah. through my nerd phase. Oh, I'm right. still a nerd. But yeah, movie, like you've escaped it on. Right. Sure. OK, go ahead. <laughs> this movie, in a way, is a time capsule because it, it harkens back to the days when the nerds were really nerds, um, when Comic-Cons were not the places where studios debuted their big tentpole movies mm-hmm. and where lots of famous people were, where they were really for the the, the Fans of the fans, like the, the, the most dedicated people would show up at these things. And they often, the stars, so-called stars at them, were not maybe the biggest draws. Right. And I, the other thing I would say <laughs> is that in, in terms of timing, this is great. This movie was perfectly timed because it's about the fans, but it's also at a point, of mo- a point in time in which the fans, for lack of a way of putting it, are not an interest group lobby. In mm-hmm. other words, you know, making a movie that, you know, is based on something like this, the first concern that anyone has nowadays is, are the hardcore fans going to like it? Right. Um, it would be safe to say that at this point in 1999, that was not on the top of anyone's, you know, radar. Right. One of the thoughts I had watching this movie and watching the documentary was that Galaxy Quest invented what we can now call fan service. <laughs> When (laughs) filmmakers or comic book authors or whatever insert things into a plot in order to make fans happy, right? Yeah. This is a movie to make fans happy. Yes. And 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 it it does it does right, but it, <laughs> it earns holds it up I mean, I, so well. Right, I, I can't I, quite believe it. The, the only time I get upset when people talk about fan servicing is when it, they, I think there are good forms of fan servicing and bad forms of fan servicing. Fan servicing mm-hmm. that is earned, I think, is legitimately a useful uh, part of something. You know, so like if think about the scene in Avengers Endgame where suddenly everyone comes through the portals. You know, mm-hmm. you've watched twenty movies at this point to get to that scene. That scene is ultimately fan servicing but it's fan servicing because you've actually put in the effort and then there's when west chatham takes off his clothes also (laughs) a very very honorable and uh legitimate fan service i would say i you know what we're going to talk about sigourney weaver a little bit later in the episode so that's an entire i'm not going to disagree with that are you saying it's going to be a tit for tat situation yeah (laughs) 
<laughs> yes. Um, in terms of, of, I will add in terms of why this, it's not just the Galaxy Quest is funny. Galaxy Quest is also something we haven't talked as much about on this podcast so far, which is it is optimistic. Um, mm-hmm. It is a, a movie that is legitimately about the good that fans can do and the good that, have, uh, you know, the sort of ideals behind these science fiction narratives can do. And and there is no denying that you can argue one of the main plots in most great science fiction is hubris destroyed by nemesis. And that is certainly the case of Alien and it's the case of, you know, in some cases The Expanse or what have you. But there is this more positive aspect of sci-fi. And I, and I think that is a strain that you don't want to deny. And it's a strain that has significant value. It's a strain that you don't want to deny and has significant value, but is often not as interesting or entertaining mm. because, you know, tragedy is kind of inherently more dramatic than comedy. But when it's done well, yes. like with Galaxy Quest, right. you, it really, you have to pay attention to it. Absolutely. So moving on from why this, um, <laughs> let's give a little background. Dan, would you like to tell the story behind the story? I would be happy to. And as I, as Anna said, but I will uh, also emphasize, if you have Amazon Prime, do watch Never Surrender, which is the title of the documentary about the sort of backstory of how Galaxy Quest was made. It's extremely well done and also includes a lot of a very amusing interviews of, of Hollywood folks that you would associate with large sci-fi franchises that are nonetheless huge fans of the show. As we said, it was made at a time when fan culture is still somewhat on the margins. There is some recognition. There is a very infamous Saturday Night Live skit involving William Shatner in which he basically tells people at a fan convention to get a life. And it actually, if memory serves, Shatner had to apologize for that skit to the fans at like a later Star Trek con. But in some ways, it, it sort of gets at that. And one of the things you realize, I think, or appreciate when when you watch the documentary is that there is a degree to which making Galaxy Quest was like lightning in a bottle that like there is no guarantee that any of this was going to work out. And indeed, there's parts of it where I'm still kind of amazed it worked out as well as it did. You don't normally think of Tim Allen and Alan Rickman in the same movie. And as I think it was Damon Lindelof who said in the 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 documentary, you know, tonally, it doesn't seem like they match. But among other things, we learn uh, that Harold Ramis was originally the first director who was supposed to uh, make the movie. He winds up having to pull out for a variety of reasons. There are a lot of outstanding cast members who make their movie debuts in this film. Justin Long, Missy Pyle, uh, Rain Wilson. And the other thing I would say is, again, it's much more gentle. There have been other efforts to do meta science fiction, as it were, or things in which it's, you know, a meta commentary on whatever it is they are. But if you look at those things like, let's say, Wes Craven's New Nightmare or the USS Callister episode from Black Mirror, this one is much nicer. And I think it's one of the reasons why Will Wheaton calls it the best Star Trek movie ever made. And the other thing I I love about the you learn about the documentary is that they originally did not want to have Sigourney Weaver in the movie because their original premise was we didn't want any they didn't want any sort of traditional sci-fi actors or actresses in the cast and Sigourney Weaver apparently like through her agent fought like hell to get this role and clearly loved the role for a variety of reasons which we'll get into later um and (laughs) it's interesting to me that she saw this as her alternate career yes which is something they say in the documentary she was like they're sort of like there but for the grace of god go i like she'd had like a television career she just barely rescues that thought from being condescending like Yes. She sort of is almost like, imagine if I had gotten a series and not like all the prestigious films I was in. <laughs> right. I thought that. Yes, yes. Yes, I did think that. Um, the other thing is, is that apparently, and this is the sad part about this, there was a plan after the movie about three or four years ago or five years ago, maybe, based on the success to do a sort of follow up short series on Amazon. Unfortunately, Alan Rickman's passing away uh, squelched that. And finally, one last thing about the the story behind the story, which is I think we now have to do this for anything that we you know, any movie that we really like, which is what I refer to as six degrees of Ridley Scott. Since Ridley Scott, you know, is the maker of Alien, which is both Anna and I agree is the most goddamn perfect sci-fi film ever made. It is worth noting the connections that Ridley Scott has to any other production that helps make that production great. In this case, obviously, Sigourney Weaver is the most uh, direct link. But also, according to the documentary, according to the producers, one of the things that they benefited from was that DreamWorks was also 
focused on their primary summer tentpole movie, which was Gladiator, directed by Ridley Scott. There was a crisis on Gladiator because Oliver Reed, unfortunately, had passed away relatively early in the shooting, and it was a question of how they were going to deal with it. And the producers for Galaxy Quest acknowledged that this was a good thing because because the studio execs were so focused on Gladiator, it basically meant they could make their film without that much in the way of studio interference at the time. I want to add some alien connections, maybe not Ridley Scott. Um, on on the other genre podcast I do, the Stephen King podcast, we have a section in um, our reviews that we call Room 237, mm-hmm. which is a reference to the documentary, which is about The Shining, which is about like these crazy theories that people have about The Shining. And what it's supposed to evoke is this idea that these are connections that may not really exist, (laughs) but that are kind of fun to think about. And I was thinking, what can we call that in our podcast? And maybe it's like the very expanded universe or whatever. Yes. So the things I would say it has in common with Alien are the weird connections. There are people who think it's perfect. Apparently, Mm -hmm. David Mamet. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> what I lo- and I love in the documentary is that is, is that that's how the documentary opens, and then they cut to Sam Rockwell saying, "David Mamet said what?" <laughs> <laughs> oh God, he's so good. Yes, and I also think it's funny that Mamet liked it. This isn't an alien thing because one of the compromises this, they had to make with the studio is to take yeah. out all the cursing, mm-hmm. um, and Mamet likes a movie with no cursing in it. That's odd. And then the other thing I'll say is that it is a very well directed film, mm-hmm. and Alien uses anamorphic i think that's the term that's um, aspect right, yes. ratio yeah and one of the things they talk about in the documentary which you notice if you're paying attention but sometimes it, it when i first saw the movie and noticed the aspect ratio change like mm-hmm. i guess i thought well maybe it was a mistake before mm-hmm. but literally the aspect ratio of the movie changes as the character's world expands Right. So it, it and there's it, everyone notices the first aspect change, which is it starts off the movie literally starts off looking like a, a showing on television, the Galaxy Quest series. And then it expands to what is the fan con. And everyone will notice that. But then it expands again when the cast realizes they're actually in outer space. And that's the one that's apparently a little trickier. And as the, as the I think Dean Pariseau is the director, said apparently they had to send a note out to all the projectionists because a lot of the projectionists didn't get that second part. And so as a result, you know, sort of killed the mood of the, the movie. The other thing I have to say I did love about the documentary was the knowledge that apparently the first casting choice for Jason Nesmith was Kevin Klein. Um, <laughs> and... and the reason I like that is because literally the documentary like goes to a galaxy, you know, like goes to a science fiction convention and talks to all these Galaxy Quest fans and asks them what their reaction to Kevin Klein is. And the reaction is sort of like the same meme you see on Twitter, potentially, where it's like, no. Ah! Oh, that's the that's the trying the kombucha meme. Yes, that's is that what it's called? Thank you. <laughs> yeah. But like, but it, it, that was basically my reaction too, which is like first like, well, I don't know. Well, wait a minute. Yeah, maybe you know, like of I, all of those who are were considered for that part. Yeah. I think Kevin Klein's the only one that I would have bought. Right. I the other one like I think they said Bruce Willis or something which that would have made right. even no like Robin sense. Williams would have been too goofy. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I actually do think Kevin Klein could have pulled it off. I think. Oh yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And I I also liked how Sigourney Weaver when confronted with that information was very great. Yep. Yeah, she he probably could have done that. <laughs> um. Okay. Enough about the backstory. Dan, can you take us through the plot? So uh, there was a show called Galaxy Quest, which uh, aired in the early 80s, similar to Star Trek, and that had been canceled, lives on through fan conventions. Most of the show's cast essentially lives on through these convention appearances and local celebrity stuff, all the while resenting everything about their existence. Alexander Dane, who plays Dr. Lazarus and is played by Alan Rickman, uh, resents being known as an alien with a cheesy tagline when he was a Shakespearean actor. Gwen DeMarco, who plays Tawny Madison on the show and is played by Sigourney Weaver, resents being treated as a sex pod rather than an actor. They all resent Jason Nesmith for his rampant egocentrism. And uh, Nesmith is sad because he realizes within the first few minutes of the film that it turns out the rest of the cast really doesn't like him too much and thinks he's a raging asshole. Um, <laughs> Anna, we talked a lot in a- about the sort of beginning of Alien and how really like the first 15 minutes of that was in some ways just sort of perfection and like, you know, nailed the sort of gritty realism. Now, I don't know if you've been to a lot of cons. I assume you have. Because I wrote the zombie book, I've done a couple zombie cons. I went to Comic-Con. I'd, I'd done a lot of, you know, a couple of regional cons. 
I think Galaxy Quest deserves some serious props for some gritty realism as well, but of a different kind. In that it really does nail that sort of con experience and like the actors having to do things that maybe they they're not thrilled about doing. Uh, what say you? Yes, I agree. You know, it's funny, like, after that mammoth quote, I kept on thinking, like, is this also a perfect movie? Is it? <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't seem to have the, the economy that Alien does, but Which it is interesting is because good. it's a shorter film. That is true. Yeah. I was thinking about, it doesn't really occur in this part of the film, but one of the lines in the documentary yeah. is how the visual effects are the straight man in this right. movie. Mm-hmm. And it, it it is worth noticing that as those change, the movie changes. Mm-hmm. And they are played straight. Yeah. And there is so much in this movie that is played straight. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the ways that it works, right? Like the Comic-Con is played pretty straight. Yes. Like they don't try to exaggerate it. They don't right. really even make fun of the people there. No, they don't. They, and in fact, you, you're supposed to think badly of the care of the, the, the main actors when they treat the, these fans badly, which mm-hmm. I think is appropriate, I would add. Right. Um, so it's sort of the opposite of the William Shatner sketch. Right. Exactly. Right. In that right. sense, yes. Because it's the actors who are assholes. Right. In the William Shatner sketches, he's the asshole, but he's also weirdly the hero. Anyway, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a, a sketch. But I, I, it, and again, this goes back to the documentary that apparently there was a nightmare in terms of the set design because the original instructions for the set design was make the ship as cheesy as possible. And then when there was a switch in directors, the new director said, no, 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 this has to be actually a legit looking spaceship. It's going to be funny because it's real. And so they then have to, you know, quickly uh, do turnover on that. I will point out. Mm-hmm. That much as with Alien, you could say that this is a movie about labor versus management. <laughs> okay, it's true. It's true. And, and wait, I want you to—I want you to expand on that a little bit. How is this a movie of labor? Who's management and who is labor? Well, I would say Tim Allen is management. Okay, all right. And then the rest of the cast is labor. And there's a like if I really wanted to get into it, like they are craftsmen. Right. (laughs) Like those, all the other actors on the show care about their craft and think of it as a craft. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Tim Allen character just profits off of their labor. Okay. I'm I'm not saying. Yeah, maybe. You could look at it that way. Just, just, you could look at that that way. I will say this. I'm not going to make the argument. I'm not going to make the strong argument for that. Yeah. But I wanted to point it out. But I will say this, like the, the, this was in the documentary and it's also in this part of the movie it was pointed out that what made this different from like a, a Star Trek spoof in some ways or what have you was that the idea was that Jason Nesmith loves being the commander in a way that Shatner clearly had, you know, conflicted issues about. And so maybe that still makes a management. That's fair. But we will uh, we, will, we will debate this further, I suspect. Still profiting off of their labor. Yes, we'll get to that. OK, so uh, moving into the uh, great beyond. Nesmith, while at this con, agrees to go with some relatively odd looking folks because he thinks it's a paying gig and they want Nesmith to serve as their commander. He's done this before. So Nesmith finds himself on the bridge of a very realistic looking protector uh, negotiating with a lizard looking alien named Saris, who I believe was named after Andrew Saris, the New Yorker film critic. Not taking anything seriously, he fires on Saris and thinks his gig is done and is about to head home. Oh, yes. And this is a very important part in the movie because this is the big aspect ratio change. He is sort of wandering around what he thinks is the, is the fake protector and there's no yeah. door to the outside. He, I think, gets directed to what he thinks is the exit. Right. Told to stand in this spotlight thing. Yeah. He's confused. He gets covered with space gunk, which is how they do transportation for some reason. Like, that's mm-hmm. their transporter thing. Yeah. And he looks up and the doors of this observatory-like room open, and as they open, the aspect ratio changes with them. Mm-hmm. So as he discovers his situation, like, our perspective changes, his perspective changes. Exactly. And it turns out that uh, uh, Jason has not been uh, just dealing with some odd-looking gentlemen, but rather uh, he is leading the Thermians from the Klaatu Nebula. The Thermians have no concept of lies or deception. So they have watched the actual Galaxy Quest television show and interpret them as historical documents. They have managed to build a perfect replica of the show, complete with armor and weapons and the mysterious Omega-13 device that is talked about on the show. Nesmith has returned to Earth and manages to convince his fellow cast members who are opening up a <laughs> uh, consumer goods store to join him, along with Guy, who is played by... Um, 
Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell. Sorry, my God, I blanked for a second. Amazing oh. bit of casting. Yes. Just, just so good. I do think, let me put this way, we, we've talked, but like in some ways, we, we talked about the making of movies, and you can talk about Ridley Scott being all over Alien. And Dean Pariseau is the director of this, obviously plays an important role. But I think the casting director deserves some sort of Academy Award because literally every part is just amazingly cast and particularly and she discovered some people too and even in that yeah. point like sam rockwell was barely right he wasn't on, on, the, on anyone's radar exactly um, i want to point out that he only that nesmith only convinces the crew to join him mm-hmm. when they think it's a paying gig yes that's correct so <laughs> anyway sam rockwell plays a guy who had played a red shirt in one episode of the original series they are all transported back to uh, actual outer space onto the protector. They are somewhat disoriented about this. They meet Saris again, who wants the Omega-13 device that the Thermians have created, but no one knows what it does. Confronted with an actual commander who is on an actual warship, the foe crew, namely the cast of Galaxy Quest, goes to pieces, <laughs> damaging the ship badly uh, by taking it through a minefield, but not before Tommy damages the ship by taking it out of space dock, which is, in fact, my favorite scene in the entire movie. It is cringe comedy. <laughs> at its best. <laughs> yes. And it's also a, an example of a, one of my favorite comedy maxims, repeat until funny, um, <laughs> which is when something is funny and then you keep going and it's not as funny and then you keep going and going and it gets funny again. Yes. even funnier. Because <laughs> yes. that screeching noise, I didn't put a timer on it, but it seems to go on forever. It does. There, there, is a, there is a sort of Austin Powers quality to it of like, you, you first you get the joke, you're like, ha Then you're like, oh, God. And then you, mm-hmm. then you just start laughing all over again. So uh, the ship has been badly damaged in the minefield. They make repairs, but only, Nes- only after Nesmith is forced to take off his shirt on an away mission, combat uh, little tiny miners um, and a rather <laughs> imposing <laughs> rock monster. They manage to return to find that Saris has taken control of the protector and uh, is torturing the Thermian leader, Malthazar, played by the just incomparable uh, Enrico Colantoni, I think is his last name. Mm-hmm. Saris uh, forces Nesmith to confess that he isn't actually a captain, but rather an actor. On a, in this middle section, I, I really do think that Tony Shalhoub is the unsung hero. He did so much with so little. I mean, the, the director acknowledges that Fred, Technical Sergeant Chen, a.k.a. Fred Kwan, I think, that role was underwritten. And what Tony Shalhoub does with it is just fucking amazing. I agree. Yes. I want to say that you sped through this section because the plot is obviously not the most important thing right. about this movie, really. Yeah. Um, but this section has what I think are some of the best jokes yes. of the movie, including, <laughs> are those the minors? <laughs> they can't be older than three years old. <laughs> and also, <laughs> Sam Rockwell. The late line. <laughs> Sam Rockwell, look around. Can you form some sort of rudimentary lathe? <laughs> and I have to say, as someone who is a fan of the original Star Trek, this is clearly a oh. an homage to the episode of Reno. Right down to taking off the shirt. Right, yes. exactly. Where he's, yes. the, the, uh, that's the Star Trek episode where he fights the giant Gorn lizard. Um, I also want to say that the Tony Shalhoub character, Fred Kwan, um, has this odd a- affect Mm-hmm. to him throughout yes. the entire movie, including the scenes before they get into space. Mm-hmm. The scene where they're beamed up like he's getting food right. out of a vending machine. And he's also the only one of the entire cast who, when they're first transported to space, is just totally chill with it. So I, I've, I've, been, I've always wondered if he's supposed to be high. <laughs> like, <laughs> like he has the munchies, and that's why he's at the vending machine. And then he just takes everything in so chill. Like, it also doesn't matter. Like, that just turns out to be what his character is in the movie, is that the guy that is not surprised by anything and just, like, takes everything as it comes. And is, Um, you know, and and is literally a professional. I mean, the one one detail, you know, is when Nesmith says to him, you you never missed a line, you never missed a call, you know, you were always there. Also, my one of my funniest moments in this movie is when he's on the engineering deck and he sort of says, "Hey, we got we we figured out how to do this," and then he like looks at the crew. And says, Come on, group hug. Let's just do the group <laughs> hug. And it's just it's so it's, again, it's, like maybe it, it feels like a high thing. I don't yes, know. Maybe it's it maybe be. it's nothing. I also want to bring in the documentary again. Yes, uh, <laughs> because this portion of the movie also has one of the two big emotional punches. Right. 
of the movie, which is when Tim Allen's character, when Jason Mesmith tells... Mathazar yeah. that he's an actor mm-hmm. and it is intense yeah it's an intense scene and it's moving and the shame mm-hmm. that you know Tim Allen kind of brings to the Jason Nesmith character that his humiliation and having to share this how terrible he feels yeah like his whole life is a sham right mm-hmm. it just is a gut punch yeah and apparently <laughs> Tim Allen this was incredibly, he was game for it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But it was really hard on him. Mm-hmm. He did a few takes. Also, apparently, this is with this one, the one day that Steven Spielberg visited the set. Right. And Steven Spielberg was like, oh, wow, good job. <laughs> but Tim Allen found that this took a lot out of him and said something like, uh, I need to go to my dressing room. I don't like the feelings I'm feeling right now. Yeah. I need to go to my trailer. Wait. To which Alan Rickman <laughs> <laughs> observed. Oh my God! I think he just experienced acting, and then it's it's also observed by someone in the documentary, and I think it's true. This is Tim Allen's best movie. Oh yeah, like Hands this down. is one of the only movies that, or TV shows, or whatever performances by Tim Allen where he's not playing Tim Allen, right? Like, or he's playing a version of Tim Allen that feels more real. Mm-hmm. Like it still feels a little bit like he's playing Tim Allen, but there's a depth to it that you don't. See, in his there's characters, an, you just don't. No, there's an element of pathos. And, and you know, I, I don't know what the other emotional beat you were thinking of, but, like, I, I will say that like I also, Thar's hammer. Yeah, okay. So th- then I would say there was a third one, which is when Tim Allen is in the bathroom stall and, like, realizes the degree oh, to which yeah, yeah, yeah. he is being mocked by others and, like, the, the, the cast hates him. I mean, he actually does play that very well. He pl- you know, he's angry. He winds up getting drunk that night. And it, there's a degree of pathos to that, which you need to have to right. both understand why he does what he does, but also like wind up rooting for him, I think. And I want to sort of just insert here something that's I mentioned before, and it's really central to the movie, which this movie works as a comedy because the drama is so good, because yes. the acting is so good. Enrico Colatoni <laughs> um, apparently went to the Yale School of Drama, which is where he learned that weird voice. <laughs> the voice trick, yes. He apparently, <laughs> the voice so, trick. Yes, and, and one of the things you learn in the documentary is that the, the voice intonations... We were doing an ad for the documentary, basically. But it Really, great. you should watch it. But, yeah. but that apparently Colantoni had done an audition. He was apparently okay, but not great. And then paused and, and said to the director, I have an idea for the voice that he apparently did from a sort of Yale school of drama exercise where you hit all the notes, you know, like that and mm-hmm. just started doing it and they loved it. And that was what they had everyone else audition doing in terms of talking, which is fantastic. And there's a, an observation that's about comedy in general that I, when I interviewed Steve Carell um, <laughs> back in the day, who, by the way, was, it's an interesting interview because he wasn't funny. Mm-hmm. But what I discovered in talking to him is that he was very interested in talking about the craft of acting. Hmm. And talking about Michael Scott, one of the things he said, and I'm sure he said it to other interviewers, yeah. but it stuck with me, is that Michael Scott doesn't know he's in a comedy. And that's why that performance works, right? right? And I think for a lot of these characters, I mean, yes. I think that's what's happening. I mean, obviously they're funny and they say funny lines, but they don't know they're in a comedy. Right. No, there has to be, there, there is a sincerity. I would also, I mean, I think this works for Justin Long's character, Brandon. So there's the chief mm-hmm. fan where like, I was Justin at a time, you know, at some point in my life, <laughs> but like just the, the, the earnestness that he has, which by the way, makes the comic payoff of when he real when he's told this is real and he goes, I knew it, you know, like just that it makes the comedic and story payoff all the more worthwhile. And the thing that the director, I think, says about the styles of comedy in this movie is he, you know, everyone admits, I think even Tim Allen, that he yeah. was a jokester, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Like that his style of acting is like, ha, 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 right. you know, like he is a comic actor. Yeah, he's a comedian. But he's a comedian. I, yeah. He's a comedian first. Yes, exactly. But that everyone else mm-hmm. in the cast is a committed actor and yeah. the comedy comes from how much they are committed to their character. Right. You know, and and that's like Sam Rockwell also. God. Like, it's just so many so many line readings that Sam Rockwell gives in this in this movie is just I can't. You cannot imagine anyone else being able to do that. I guess. And again, it all works because, like you're saying, the sincerity of it. Yeah. If if they've tried to make it funny, it wouldn't work. Yes, I don't think. Anyway, 
Let us move on. Okay, so let us wrap up the plot, uh, destroying the big bad, in which uh, Ceres has set the protector on self-destruct and orders his men to space the human crew and essentially starve the Thermian crew of oxygen. Jason and Alexander fake a fight in order to uh, distract the cards, and they manage to escape. Gwen and Jason make their way through the most absurd maze ever designed (laughs) with the help of fans of the show, namely Justin Long's Brandon, to stop the self-destruct sequence, leading to the worst dubbed fuck this in cinema history. Alexander, who is helped by Quellic, frees the Thermians, but Quellic is killed in the process, leading to Alan Rickman's best line reading in the entire movie. The cast and crew manages to take command and performs capably in defeating Saris' ship. He beams on board, disguised as Fred, and starts firing on everyone on the command deck. Jason activates the Omega-13 device, which no one was entirely sure what it would do, and as it turns out, what it does is rewind time 13 seconds, allowing him to save the ship this time, uh, although the ship does crash land into the actual Galaxy Quest con. The cast and Lilari, who is the alien who... Fred, uh, the sexy up. alien. There is, is a sexy alien. There is a sexy alien. Which is a trope that, you know, mm, but it, it works. Yeah. It works. Because there, <laughs> there is a twist. Because yes. <laughs> after all, remember, the Thermians <laughs> look like human beings when they have the projection device, but in actuality, they are basically octopuses. Um, yes. They return to Earth with the help of Brandon and his nerd posse, crashing into the Galaxy Quest Con again, as I said, evaporating Ceres, and uh, leading to a reboot of the show, most importantly. Mm-hmm. Anna, I do think this movie really can be explained by the two times Alan Rickman's character actually says by Grapthar's hammer, as opposed to like when it's on tape. But the first time, which uh, is one of it's, it's an obvious line, but it's still just incredibly well done, is when he says, by Grapthar's hammer, what a savings, as they open it up. <laughs> As they're opening up the tech store. And then the second time when he says the line very sincerely as Quellick is about to die. In both of those times, the comedy is from the commitment, right? Yeah. Like... Well, the second time, I don't think it's comedy. I mean, the second time, it's legitimately... Oh, yes, you're right. So I shouldn't say... It's not that the comedy is from the commitment, but the power of it is from the commitment. That's fair. Yes, absolutely. The first time it's for comedy. The second time it's it's emotional, but it's Alan Rickman that does it, right? right? Yeah. Like... Oh, God, he's so good. Yes. I just. <laughs> the other thing that oh. I find amazing about this movie is that you never see him without his headpiece on. That is true. Wait, even at home? No, even at even... home, he has the headpiece on, which is a little That's weird. Funny. We'll talk about the home in a sec- you know, a little bit. But like, yes, it's weird. He doesn't even have it off then, which I think, right. by the way, belies the fact that like as much as he might not like it, he likes it a little bit, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, alien sex scene. Uh, or I should say there's there's a sexy alien. There is a alien sex scene, and it is very alien. <laughs> it is. I did not know prior to this movie that there was such a thing as tentacle porn. <laughs> it's a thing. It's not just this movie. No, I know. It's called, it, isn't it called it is hentai or something? Or Yeah, I believe so. Yes, okay. I have never actually Googled it. I would not Google it if I were you, no. dear listener. Although I guess you'd probably get some, like, just Wikipedia pages for it, which is... Yeah, Good. like but do you want the fourth that in your page Google of the Google search, I'm sure, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> also, this scene has the world's best smash cut, mm-hmm. which is, and a, and a setup that is like not, you don't realize is a setup, which is the best kind. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of like Justin Long's character is a teenager, his, dad, his mom asked him to take out the trash. And then there's, we, as they're trying to stop the detonator, they're trying to get a hold of, of Brandon and the smash cut is to him t- having to take out the trash. And the recycling. Don't forget the recycling. Oh, and the recycling. Don't forget the recycling. <laughs> we can just sort of talk about some favorite scenes and stuff now if you want. Um, yeah. We've already gone over some of the best lines. I don't know why the lathe line <laughs> is my favorite, but I think it's this, again, it's the sincerity. And also it's poor guy yes. who like, his journey in the movie is to actually become a crew member, right? right? Yeah. Like he, he goes from hanger on to having a starring role in the reboot. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's constantly like, I don't think I'm, I should be here. Like, I don't, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm yeah. going to die. And this is one of, this is not just a funny line. It's one of his steps towards being a part of the crew. Right. And I, maybe that's one of the reasons it has such power, but by God, like that line. And then the other line that's also part of his journey mm-hmm. Is actually not his line, but it's when Tony Schlieb tells him, maybe you're the plucky comic relief. Right. I think there are two lines that, that maybe three that I love, or, or, you know, sort of scenes. The first is, as you say, the best part about the alien sex scene is Guy saying, oh, yes. 
is guy saying oh, that's, oh, not right. that's not right <laughs> it's just it's, it's and it's his way of saying right yes, too exactly. it's that's not right it's it's, yeah. it's the kind of thing that the first time you hear that the cadence is unusual and yet it just it works perfectly the other thing I, I like what you, you'd referenced before is when when uh, Nesbeth is being pursued by the rock monster at one point, Alexander has to say, well, you're just going to have to get into its motivations. Like, what does it want? <laughs> <laughs> and says, it's a rock monster. And, and Alexander says, you were never serious about the craft, Jason. I, just, I love that. <laughs> and I like it too. Again, it's sincere. And also, it's not terrible advice, actually. I get, like, that's true, yes. It's actually kind of good advice. Like, I mean, what it wants probably is to kill him but if it hadn't been that that would be good to know (laughs) and i have to say as a young teenage nerd at one point and so i do find the sequence where nesmith finally gets in touch with brandon because he realizes they had swapped uh, communicators and brandon tries to say like i'm not that much of a nerd i'm not that much of a nerd you know i I recognize like you know i've got a you know i'm not a a complete head case and so forth and nesmith is trying to get him to shut up so he can say something and then finally Nesmith says Brandon it's all real and Brandon says I knew it you know and just like and, and they, as it said in the documentary this is the dream that every space nerd has you know or sci-fi geek has which is at one point that they wind up learning that something like this actually is reality and it's easy I think and we've sort of done it to be like this is the key moment this is the key moment this is the key moment <laughs> That is one of them, you know, and it's that sincerity and validation, right? And I hadn't really thought about it this way before, but one of the things about being a nerd, yes, believe it or not, dear listeners, I also was a young female nerd, is that you are often feel more sincere, I think, than your fellows. Um, that you take things more seriously in a way. Yes. Like, I think that's you how I, that's them. how I, f- I feel them. And that's yeah. how I felt at least like now I've come to believe that all teenagers feel things pretty strongly right. and maybe just the popular kids had better ways of processing it or they didn't process it. I don't know. But I always think about um, that line from Buffy, which was, you know, you're concerned with your pain. No one cares about your pain. Everyone's too busy with their own pain. Right. Yeah. But one of the things I think that we nerds feel is that everyone else is somehow able to like joke and laugh and like be fun. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about, you know, serious shit. (laughs) I mean, you you had fun too. Like I had a bunch of running jokes with my nerd debate team friends, but I was on the debate team. (laughs) Like, you know, we spent a lot of time, like just our free time we spent talking about like nuclear disarmament. So nice. As the captain of the it, math team, my high school math team, I can identify with this. Right. And so to have your sincerity mm-hmm. and your passion for something that's a little other people think of as, you know, boring. And you dumb. are aware that other people think it's boring. Yeah. That's part of this. And so it, again, the final beat of this movie, which is essentially Nesmith not just acknowledging that he needs his cast, but also in some ways acknowledging the fans and and thanking Brandon and his friends sort of wordlessly for helping them, you know, it gives some redemption to that character arc. Yeah. I mean, I never really thought about it this way until this very discussion about that idea that to have your sincerity redeemed and respected Mm -hmm. um, and what that feels like to a teenager or to people who were teenagers who felt like their sincerity was mocked. Mm -hmm. I think that's a fair point. Okay. So Dan, our next question. Yes. Is there IR in this movie? Anna, you would think no, because this is just sort of a, a goofy space satire, but I can find IR in an abandoned Beryllian mine, and I can certainly find IR here. There are three themes, in fact, of IR that are shot through this movie. The first and the most basic one is that, you know, there's a certain amount of element of statecraft that is performance. And I think this this came out most importantly in the sort of final confrontation between the Protector and, and Saris's ship. When Nesmith says, and this is the, the truest line he says, it doesn't take a great actor to recognize a bad one. I have to admit, when he said that, I thought of Ronald Reagan, because Reagan was once asked uh, towards the end of his presidency, do you ever think that it's weird that you started off life as an actor and then became president? And he responded, you know, having done the job now for seven years, I don't know how you could have done this job without having been an actor. Um, which whatever you think of Reagan, there is an element of truth to, to the degree to which there is a degree of, of theatricality in terms of being a politician or being a, a foreign policy leader. The other we just th- had someone as president who I think kind of 
this was a little performing. Yeah, but he was not as good of an actor um, as Rankin would be the way that I put it. Um, Or you know what? His understanding of the role was quite different. Yes, that's fair. That's fair. The other thing that I find interesting, and this was this wasn't a huge thing in the movie, but the rest of the cast, there's a brief moment when they're all on the planet where Alexander says, why are we listening to Jason? He's not the actual commander. We are actually like playing. This is real life. This isn't the the show. But what's funny to me is that the rest of the cast can't shake the idea of Nesmith as the commander. And indeed, when they finally get back to the ship, they defeat Saris because, among other things, everyone is actually playing their role correctly. And so that that sort of uh, matters as well. The second theme, and this is some really hardcore sociology here, is a concept that is called institutional isomorphism. I will say that again for those in the back. Institutional isomorphism. Essentially, this is a, a scenario where less successful entities and in the international relations of states look to successful states see what they're doing and try to copy it but they often copy it in a mindless way or without understanding why whatever they're copying um, is actually an ingredient for success so they wind up usually just copying the trappings the uh, physicist richard Feynman uh, once dubbed this cargo cult science and the reason he dubbed it that was because in world war ii he was on some polynesian island and discovered that an indigenous tribe had essentially created all of the physical characteristics of an airport, including like the sticks to signal when planes should land and helmets and so on and so forth, thinking that if they did that, actual planes would land um, and not realizing there was, you know, electronics involved and so on and so forth. The difference in this case is that in some ways this is the reverse of institutional isomorphism because the Thermians actually managed to make all the technology work, even though they don't understand what it does, including the Omega-13 device. And then finally... Actually, so question. Yes, go ahead. Wait, no, professor. Yes. Yes, Anna, you in the front row. (laughs) (laughs) I think... I don't quite understand the movie's logic on this, but it's not important, so I don't, you know, quibble too much. But I feel like one of the things that's in the movie is that they actually somehow... Most of the technology they do understand. And there's this... There's the implication that somehow this cheesy TV show has correctly stumbled upon some science that works. They have, like, described... They have... Right. Like, they have made, things like beryllium spheres, apparently, which yes, actually exist yes, in yes, the yes, real yes. world. Right, yes, yes, yes. Right, right. No, I think, and maybe there's some string theory happening here. Like, you know... Like, right. So this is one... This we is, create reality. This but, is why I think David Mamet might be wrong. Because if you think really hard about this, this part doesn't actually hold up terribly no. well. Which is to say that... Unless you, you take the magic of the movie and the theme of the movie about, like, we create, you know... Yeah. What we imagine can be real. Wow, there must be really fucking powerful imaginations at work, right? No, and this is actually weirdly where it winds up intersecting, I think, with John Scalzi's Red Shirts, which I hope they make into a movie at some point. But like where the same sort of thing happens uh, there. So yeah, the other part that didn't, from a plot perspective, entirely make sense is the idea that they can create an Omega-13 device, but yet have no idea what it does. So this is where it doesn't quite hold up. But nonetheless, it's, it's... uh, and we keep going. Yes. Uh, moving on. Moving on. The, the last thing, and again, this is one of the reasons why I like it, but I think it also has an IR element to it, is the value of utopian thinking. So E.H. Carr is an international relations scholar who wrote in the interwar period. His most well-known book is a book called uh, The 20 Years Crisis. And Carr in that book talks about sort of two strains of thinking when it comes to world politics. One, which he calls realist basically means describing the world as it is in sort of a very pessimistic way. And the other strain that he talks about is utopian thinking, in some ways saying the way the world ought to be. A lot of people have interpreted Carr's book as sort of bashing utopian thinking and and praising realist thinking, which is an incorrect reading of the book. Carr's point... (laughs) (laughs) Okay, professor. (laughs) Yeah, sorry. This is a... This is a slight... <laughs> These people are wrong. I'm just going to say that. The reason that is is believed that is that Carr was writing at a time when he thought utopian thinking was too powerful in terms of guiding what people said, thereby leading to what was eventually World War II. But Carr in the, is explicit in the book in saying that in order to have a functioning world politics, you do need to have an aspiration. You do need to have some sort of goal um, or set of beliefs that you want to achieve. And this ties into the, the movie Galaxy Quest and also clearly Star Trek, which is what Galaxy Quest is, is honoring. Let's be blunt. The aspirational thinking, I think, of Star Trek has taken something of a beating in this century. The Expanse, I think, is, is an example of that because the Expanse does not necessarily have much in the way of, of utopian thinking. But utopian ideals do have an independent power. And I think in some ways the fact that the movie 
works the way it does, and also within the movie, the fact that the Thermians acknowledge that they recovered from disarray by following the precepts of the show suggests that there is a power at times to utopian thinking, that it can't dominate the way people live. You have to acknowledge reality as well, but you also need to have some aspiration you're going to pursue. Well, living as we do in a shining city on a hill, (laughs) you know, we Americans, I think, have a pretty strong history with aspirational thinking as a foreign policy and domestic policy. Mm -hmm. Like that's kind of our go-to. And I will grant you that if you do too much aspirational thinking, there can be problems. I mean, that was Carr's yes. point in the book. So I'm not I'm not trying to say only rely on utopian thinking, but I'm saying there you also can't not rely on it. But I agree. Yeah. And actually, think you know, speaking of our, our former president, whose name I just get it gets harder and harder to remember. It's like a distant haze. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, you know something I'm sure you and I talked about because it was just a, a, a true thing is that it was a nihilist ideology yeah like it didn't really have any aspirations right i mean it, there there was this talk of america first but it wasn't an aspirational thing it was actually just america leave us alone right and no and right? trump even said he even said it very like he was asked why don't you denounce putin as a killer and he says you you know we've, we're killers too which again and he was correct he was partly correct <laughs> but it also suggests therefore you know it, it's basically the ultimate whataboutism it says it doesn't matter that that you mm-hmm. know none of this matters and i think that that's not and there was no there was no foreign policy aspiration yeah either it was it was just like you know again we want ours right which is not the same thing as an aspiration right you know and when i think about we're going to digress into foreign policy and the real world for a second okay because i when that guy who was president became president (laughs) and the republican party split i found that a lot of the people who were my like contacts and sources and friends on the right mm-hmm. became never lumpers, whatever it was. Right. And I couldn't figure out the through line. I'm still not quite sure what it is, except I have remarkably good taste, obviously, and friends. <laughs> but one of the things that I, I, I thought I saw was that most of them were actually neocons. Yes. And there's an identity reason that they might not like Trump, but also neocons for, for all their faults. And there are, I would argue there's, well, one big fault. I wouldn't say many faults, but one big fault. I just disagree. There is an aspiration. There is an yes. ideal. There is a desire to make the world better. Mm-hmm. Again, I think that their method in making the world better, right. <laughs> it's a flawed one. But I can, but I do think that that's something that happened. Yeah, no, I I completely agree with this, and I I mean I remember in 2016 I had a lot of my Democratic friends who were like, oh God, it's so cynical that the neocons have turned against Trump, and this is just a stage play, and if he wins, they'll just wind up going back to him. And I think they were all legitimately surprised that that didn't happen, and I wasn't because, as I said, agreeing with you that there are many foreign policy blunders that you can lump onto to neoconservatives, but. They actually did have this belief, and it's tough to think that you have this belief and try to serve a president that you realize has none, whether it's Democrat or Republican. And so, again, the belief system matters. It is just as real as tanks and dollars and what have you. And I will also, to my own progressive side, point out that progressive foreign policy can often, I think, fail when it does not have an affirmative yep. goal. You know, we can't just be like, oh, we don't want to be in wars. Don't do stupid shit was the Obama foreign policy mantra. There's an element that that's not a but, bad... And there's some that sort of works, but that's... you also kind of need, you kind of need a thing you want to do. Yes, that's what I'm trying to say. Yes, exactly. Okay, sorry. No, 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 that, no, no, I don't... I... <laughs> sorry, Professor. No, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> Didn't mean to interrupt. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I mean you're right. I, I I think we're just on this. We're on the same page. It's a professor's it, have, you know. It's a professor. Professor. Uh, it's an occupational hazard. Like don't interrupt me. Don't interrupt. Me. Like yes. Nope. Nope. Yeah. I did interrupt you. No. But it is interesting, right? Yeah. Like that. That that in in Obama's foreign policy was kind of weird and flawed, and a lot of people, including progressives, see it as one of the failures of the administration. Mm-hmm. And I would say that while there were specific things that I would disagree with that have to do with you know more warlike stuff that he did Mm -hmm. like droning people and whatnot one of the things was that no one quite understood well what is it you're trying to do right there was no overarching ambition and so 
this matters in the end. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, maybe we'll put somewhere in the show notes where you can fast forward from if you're using this podcast to escape from reality. (laughs) (laughs) And then we'll we'll go right back in now to actually discussing the very fun (laughs) movie Galaxy Quest. Dan, would you like to maybe talk about what you see as some themes? So beyond the IR stuff, I think the basic theme I, I want to talk about is the need for roles, the the sort of searching for identity. And we see that particularly with the, the various cast members. It's like throwing gasoline on a flame. Look, I have one job on this lousy ship. It's stupid, but I'm going to do it, okay? Glorified extra, Fred. That is, with hands down, my favorite line that Sigourney Weaver has in this movie, by the way, because the movie does play on the fact that there's only one woman in the cast of Galaxy Quest. She has a role that would... She might be upset about being described as a sexpot in TV Guide. The character is clearly supposed to be a sexpot. But what I did like was the sheer professionalism of this, of like, look, I know this is a stupid thing that I have to do, but if I don't do it, then what is the purpose? And what is my purpose? What is my purpose, exactly. Yeah. So... Dan, I am going to take your observation Mm -hmm. of the need for roles and and kind of raise it a little bit, which is that you are your role. And also what you imagine to be true, your art can be someone else's reality. I like that one. Maybe you're the plucky comic relief. This episode was badly written! It's all real. Oh my God, I knew it. I knew it! I knew it! I could use actually your quotes. I just threw in a few extras, some of which we've already referenced, (laughs) but it sort of goes to the self-awareness of, of, of the movie. But also I do think in (laughs) like this, you could also say again, this is maybe why the Omega 13 device works Mm -hmm. is there is this idea that if we believe in something strong enough, like we can maybe make it true. And it treats that seriously. Yeah. And not, it doesn't make fun of that idea. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is actually just to underscore this idea idea of aspiration and utopia. It's saying, yeah, go ahead and imagine this thing that doesn't exist. Because maybe we can make it exist. Maybe we can will it into existence. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, again, why one of the big emotional beats in the movie is, it's all real. I, I knew, knew it. it. <laughs> I, I did want to point out sort of a meta thing here which is that tim allen scene that we talked about where he actually acts right is almost like him becoming the thing that everyone needs him to be <laughs> <laughs> so we could probably just spend some time quoting things back to one another <laughs> uh which would be fun yes but but maybe not, not for the listeners i don't know <laughs> not for our listeners yes. so let us just take a take a flight through the debris field do you have anything to add? I have a few things. So first, one of the things that struck me is, again, this is a movie of its time, which is 1999, because I kept thinking, if it was now, there is no way this show would not be in circulation somewhere. It would be on Netflix or Amazon or something, and they probably would have rebooted it without them having gone into space. The second thing I thought, and this is not a huge thing, but again, it's there There are moments in movies where like even little things of set design tell you stuff, and I, I like the small scene in which Gwen and Alexander are having a phone conversation about Jason losing it. Because as it turns out, when you look at the background, Gwen's apartment is nice. It's well-decorated. It's tasteful. And clearly she has taken care of herself. Whereas Alexander, who ostensibly is this big, you know, Shakespearean actor, is living in a pigsty. There's no other way to put it. And Jason Nesmith is living in a creepy mansion, you know, in the hills. And this does speak to your notion of there being a class divide between them, because clearly Jason can afford a uh, mansion and the other actors in the cast cannot a quibble is not exactly a mansion okay. but it is a really nice house yeah. i think it might actually be ron burgundy's house <laughs> <laughs> and uh, jason Mesmith has things in common with ron burgundy that's a good point yes and one of the reasons why that house works although it's just also true that california houses in in beverly hills have large glass walls it is interesting to have someone who's an exhibitionist and a, and a performer mm. to live in a house made of glass that's fair and then finally i have to give a shout out to the blonde wig and prosthetic boobs that sigourney weaver wore in this performance 
both of which she apparently loved. You know, in the documentary and in, you know elsewhere, she has said that she loved putting on that wig, that she loved uh, you know putting on uh, the prosthetics, and that it, like Sam Rockwell somewhere said that like the moment she did that, she got very flirty. Um, and, and there is a small, I hadn't noticed this before. There is a very small beat when they're all on the planet where Sam Rockwell guy is standing right next to Gwen and Gwen's top has been pulled down to a low V cut and you see him checking her out and he catches her on that. And it's like, it's, it's just a small little beat that was very funny. I thought. And also it's sort of an interesting commentary is you are what you, you perform, right? Like if she became more flirty and more Gwen, like it, when she put that stuff on Hmm. interesting. Anna, what about you? I would just say again, I think there's a class element here, which mm-hmm. is sort of cool. And, and it's not, I'm not trying to make everything about politics, but <laughs> some people are exploited and they're often the people that do the labor. I recently binged on the Ted Lasso show. Oh, I Ted. watched it all last weekend. And I, I'm sort of glad that I waited. I was not in the mood for comedy for quite some time. Mm. And uh, I decided to go ahead and, and give it a chance. And, of course, my interest was rewarded. It's an amazing show. I cried probably as much as I laughed. And that's one of the things that has in common with Galaxy Quest is that it, it's a comedy that works because of its sincerity and its dramatic performances. I would add here, first of all, it's not we're never going to be able to talk about it on this show except for now because it's not a sci-fi show, but it's such a friggin' good show. But I would also say, like you, I watched that show. Our family was going through a relatively rough patch for uh, COVID-related reasons, and that show saved us for a week emotionally. And so I would strongly urge viewers or listeners, if you were feeling like you were in a low place, if you were feeling like you need a pick-me-up, it is worth, if nothing else, just subscribe to Apple for that seven-day thing and binge watch it because you will not regret it. And I would say it's particularly good for those of us that might be going through some shit to Mm -hmm. watch because it's not a jolly you out of your depression kind of show. it is not. It will meet you where you're at. Yeah. Like some people, like people have recommended to me, like when I've been down, like, oh, you know, watch some comedy. And I can't, like, it just doesn't work for me because I don't want to, I don't want to be cajoled out of my bad mood, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Or out of my seriousness. And what's amazing about Ted Lasso is it meets you at this very earnest, serious place. Mm-hmm. And you can stay there kind of too. Like it's it's very funny. Yes. But it never tries to like make you laugh, if that makes sense. And then the other thing about it, it has in common with Galaxy Quest is that it's fundamentally optimistic. Yes. And it is so rare <laughs> to find any, especially like critically acclaimed mm-hmm program that that has that fundamental optimism i mean again since this is the only time we're going to get to talk about ted lasso yeah. i guess we're going to talk about ted lasso it, it, i think in some ways it's a response to the um sort of breaking badization right of the anti you know the, the anti-hero return of the past like 10 years or so oh 20 where, i think this goes back to the sopranos yeah Oh, yeah. So Sopranos, Breaking Bad. Yeah. I mean, all of Mad the Men. prestige television. Yeah. Mad Men. There's all this prestige television where the hero is an antihero. Right. And like you're supposed to, it's supposed to, I mean, it is true. People are complicated. And to make a statement about how complicated people are by having your hero have these terrible traits, fine. Mm-hmm. I like Mad Men. Yeah. <laughs> I like Breaking Bad. But to bring someone into existence, this character into existence, who is fundamentally a decent person. Yeah. And make them interesting. And make them grounded. Like, um, yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. And so in that and, sense, and also it's not a coincidence, I think, that in Ted Lasso, Jason Sudeikis, who's a comic actor, winds up doing it. So in some ways, much like Tim Allen being able to make this movie work because he has to do the dramatic beats, there are moments where Ted Lasso is just a little bit down, and I think that actually is what makes that show work as well. Yeah, and I would add, sorry if the mood thing, you will cry. <laughs> so <laughs> just be ready to. Yeah. And that's okay. I mean, it makes the comedy kind of sweeter. I cannot wait for season two. Yes, I'm same. I'm so excited. Yes. I also, oh, okay, no spoiler alert, but the, the, the last episode is amazing. Yes. Yes, it is. It does not do what you think it's going to do. Yeah. No, I, I, again, and I was pleasantly surprised by that, actually. And on that hopeful but sad note, it is time to end this particular episode, Anna. Yes. So I believe next week we are doing the three-body problem. We are. We're doing the three-body problem, and then we're doing Arrival, uh, and then Forever War, and then uh, the Battlestar Galactica. Pilot. 
Original yes. pilot. Mm-hmm. Yes. And we are always taking suggestions. You can find us on patreon.com slash space the nation. I will put a appreciation out for everyone who subscribes or who gives us money and also say that we are basically a three person operation Mm -hmm. and we've had some technical difficulties lately. Karen had to have some sinus stuff looked at. So she's been out of commission. So we've had some episodes come out late. And if you've made it to this end of the episode you're probably one of the people that is willing to forgive us for that so and we forgive you as well so thank (laughs) you (laughs) so thank you very much you know at some point maybe have either more people or more time and the technical and life hiccups won't happen as much we do appreciate everyone who listens the money is not why we do this to find people who are as excited about this as we are is pretty great Yes, so thank you, the fans. And all I can close with is keep this channel open for more. Mm -hmm.